Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone and welcome to The History of England, episode 260, would you believe? So there I was, sitting thinking about how I might keep things going and continue to earn a living by doing the thing I love more than anything else in the world, except marmalade and buttered toast on a Sunday morning with the newspaper, of course, oh, and the family. And I reflected that it is difficult to listen to the same old voice week in, week out, however good or however much you like that voice. And so I thought I should mix it up a bit. So in this episode, I have tried to add just a couple of segments where I dress up the drama a bit with a bit of description and a spot of music and the odd effect here or there. Now, you might love this, or you might hate it, or you might simply have no opinion. Either way, let me know, would you? Facebook or comment on my website, either is good. Secondly, if you'd like to help me stop selling the dog or cancel the newspaper and marmalade subscription, then become a member and you'll access a catalogue of 45 hours worth of podcast and get 90 minutes new for a members-only podcasts every month. And even if you have no interest in any more podcasts, then you might consider the membership as a way of supporting this very podcast, the all-free History of England. All you need to do is go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and hit become a member. Let me take you to London. The year It's 1548. It's about a year before the chaos of the prayer book rebellion and the Commonwealth camps. A 27-year-old man was hurrying towards London Bridge. He was well-dressed without being flashy, a confident young man, comfortable with his position and in control of himself, already used to exercising authority and discretion. The man's name was William Cecil, and on this warm June morning, 
despite the gravitas he projected, he was worried. He had a mission, and it wasn't an easy mission. He passed by the church of St Magnus the Martyr, where a group of pilgrims from the south were offering prayers to the saint for their safe arrival at the great city, and where once had stood the wharfs of Roman London, and thence onto the bridge, through the great stone gateway, and he began to walk past the high houses, shops and tenements that crowded in on him from both sides, finding a way past the crowded pavements and avoiding the carts that rattled past him towards the city. Eventually, he stepped off the southern end of the bridge and into Southwark. Southwark felt different, because once in Southwark, the power of the mayor and the city of London was lessened. Yes, they still administered the market, but much of Southwark was owned by England's richest bishop, the Bishop of Winchester. Cecil might have dowly noted to himself that Southwark could hardly be counted as a holy place. To his west, where he turned as he came over the bridge, was the liberty of the manor of Clink, notorious for its stews, where you could get a bath and a bit more if you wanted to, the home of the bishop's infamous prison. In fact, you could get pretty much whatever you wanted in the liberty of the Clink, as it had recently become known, bear baiting or bull baiting or plays or indeed the attentions of the Winchester geese, though you'd face the danger of being bitten and ending up with the goosebumps, and that was incurable back then. But Cecil ignored the calls and attractions and headed for the massive building that dominated the muddy riverbank, the palace of the Bishop of Winchester, because the object of Cecil's mission was the bishop himself, the mighty Stephen Gardiner. As Cecil demanded entrance to the palace, he might have reflected that at 65, Gardner was no less formidable than he'd ever been. No one that had survived the reign of Henry VIII could ever be ignored, and Cecil had a mountain to climb. To persuade the bulwark of traditional religion, the intellectual leader of Catholicism in England, to preach in support of an Edwardian Reformation that he despised. William Cecil would not have been where he was without the Tudors. His family owed much of what they had to the relationship. So, back in 1485, when the hopeful contender Henry Richmond landed in Wales, one of the men who'd come to join his adventure was a Welshman called David Cecil. David Cecil came from a minor gentry family on the Welsh-English borders. Like many of his class, William Cecil was very interested indeed in his lineage and very proud of his Welsh roots. He did a lot of work to trace his descent back and he found that he was descended from the Welsh princes. Sadly, the work appears to be largely fluff and... well, fluff. Anyway. Once victory was achieved over the noble and rightful King of England, over the evil usurper Richard III, delete as applicable, David became one of Henry VII's newly fangled yeomen of the guard. Until a connection with Henry's mum, Margaret Beaufort, or the Beauf, as she was called, saw him end up near England's smallest county. Though not actually in England's smallest county, Moulton in Parvo, though there is, because it's quite hard to actually hit Rutland from any sort of distance. Beauf's place was in Collie Weston, close by, though sadly her house no longer exists, I know, because I went to have a look. Anyway, the point is... David Cecil prospered, and he became a burgess of Stamford in Parliament, and also, would you believe, the most famous job in the shires, Sheriff of Nottingham. Stamford, by the way, for those of you who do not know, is in the east of England, about halfway up, in Lincolnshire. It is in Lincolnshire now, anyway. He also had a share in the Tabard Inn at Stamford, 
which was to be the source of all kind of, oh, you're just an innkeeper gags at William Cecil's expense when he later became famous. Ignore William, just ignore, walk away. David Cecil managed to land his son, Richard, a good job, a job in the chamber at court in London. Richard was allowed to lease some crown lands because of this relationship, and you know, the Cecils were on the up and up. Richard Cecil did manage to actually find England's smallest county, and he became its sheriff, which success meant that he became an attractive prospect, and he landed a very good marriage to Jane Heckington. According to Jane's memorial, she was a very grave, religious, virtuous and worthy matron, and delighted in works of piety and charity. I suspect a tomb is not the place for an honest, if critical, appraisal, but never mind that. Let us take this judgment at face value. Jane was not only a paragon, she also had a bob or two, and brought with her the honour of Burley near Stamford. No doubt this will come up again at some point, but if you've not been to Burley House, which will be built by her son William, then you need to go and see Burley House. If you've not been to Stamford, then you need to go to Stamford. OK, I mean, I know I'm doing that thing that my children always did and confusing want and need, so let me simply advise you to consider a visit to Burley and Stamford. Seriously advise you to consider a visit. OK, so Richard and Jane Cecil had children. The eldest, William, was probably born in 1520. And William was joined over the years by three sisters, Margaret, Elizabeth and Anne. William was sent to school in Grantham and then into Stamford. Stamford School will, of course, cost you an arm and a leg these days, but back then was a Uriah Heap sort of a school. By which I do not mean it had a precocious passion for heavy metal and prog rock, but was your very humble sort of place. William was not sent to one of those big and very reasonably priced big schools in London. And so it was a local schoolmaster, Libeus Beard, who was responsible for William's early education. Now there's a name for you, Libeus biblical apparently. In 1535, at 15 years of age, William was for Cambridge University. They went off young in those days of course. Where he was there taught by some very interesting masters, John Cheek and Roger Ascham, amongst others. These men were evangelicals and would become a highly influential ones at that. So John Cheek you'll recognise as Edward VI teacher and Roger Ascham was connected with both Jane Grey and the Princess Elizabeth. Cecil, therefore, had a very good, strong, humanist education, and it would influence him deeply. It made him a formidable classicist and scholar. It embedded in Cecil a concept of civil society, the concept of civil society as an agreement, a contract between all the various degrees of peoples and estates. And those peoples should be rationally and equitably governed by self-disciplined men steeped in classical virtues, that was his philosophy. This is a philosophy you may recognise in modern politics as well. To this was added the traditional concept of loyalty and service as the subject of a monarch. That is a difficult combination, and that was a combination that would occasionally give him a problem. The governor was responsible to a social contract and was nonetheless ruled by the will of a monarch. In the end, though he once threatened to resign if his advice was not taken, he recognised that his masters had the right to accept or reject his advice. Somewhere on the way, Cecil became an evangelical. It's not exactly clear when and where, but actually it would have been a bit of a blow if he hadn't. Cambridge was where the radicals went, the ones that challenged the Leviathan of the traditional church. The people he lived and studied with were radicals. 
And despite that iron-willed discipline and determination for which he will become known, Cecil was also a man of passion, and he would have thrown himself into the debate wholeheartedly. And that same passion and commitment led to what his father and the Buzzcocks considered a hideous crime. He fell in love, and he fell in love with someone he shouldn't have fallen in love with. The partner in this mistake, which occurred in 1541, was his tutor's sister, Mary Cheek. Not only did he fall in love, I mean, these things happen, you know, tusk, tusk, then he went and married her. He did what? Seriously, this is seismic in terms of family politics. Mary could bring no more than £40. £40! She was a disastrous marriage for the ambitious Cecils. She was definitively NQOCD, and there are even indications that his father, Richard Cecil, intended to write William out of his will as a result. And by the following year, Mary had delivered of a son, Thomas. So from the tender age of 22, Cecil was a father. Cecil, by this point, had switched to the law for a career and had gone to Gray's Inn in London. Probably this was 1540, and it may well have been an attempt by his father to get Cecil away from Mary and off to London before he went and did some damn fool thing like getting married at his age. And if so, it was a strategy which, as we have heard, failed, since Mary and William married the following year. Sadly, Mary then died in 1544, and within two years, Cecil had married again. This time, he married Mildred Cook, the daughter of Anthony Cook, a knight, a governor of Edward VI, and another radical. This time, William's dad fell on his neck with joy. Delighted, my boy, thoroughly delighted, with what was a thoroughly suitable match in financial and status terms. Mildred was definitely OCD, and the buzzcocks were banished to memory and a green ogre in the woods, and all were smiles. The will was put back in the cabinet. As it happens, Mildred and William very much shared the same values. Mildred was a formidable scholar in her own right, educated by her father alongside his sons. She was, like Jane Grey, part of the network of evangelicals that wrote to each other and shared their views. Mildred and William to be, were to be married for 44 years. From there, Cecil managed to land work at court, with Edward Seymour, protector of course, in 1547. He had landed the big one, capital B, capital O. Although we don't know exactly what his first entry-level job was, we know that he was everywhere. He's described as the Lord Protector's agent, and a year later he became the Lord Protector's master of requests. Now that meant that he was in charge of all those begging letters that came the way of a nobleman in the early modern world. And that, my friends, meant dealing with a lot of correspondence, and a lot of people, both great and small. It is not a job for someone like me who is incapable of saying no. It is a job for a strong-minded kind of guy. It put him right at the heart of the court network. And being right at the heart of the court network meant, of course, that he was connected. Because that's kind of what network means, I suppose. And the people with whom he was connected had power and influence, as well as some losers, of course. Many of the contacts he made were also evangelicals, including Catherine Brandon, the Duchess of Suffolk. And Catherine Brandon put him in touch with Catherine Parr, and when Catherine published her Lamentations of a Sinner, it would be William Cecil who wrote the foreword. In suitably eulogistic style, of course. I'd better get on with it then. So, back to the beginning. And the potentially nervous young courtier, our William Cecil, going to see one of the leading men of the realm, possibly in the Bishop of Winchester's Palace in Southwark. No doubt passing as he went the Winchester geese, as they were called, who were not geese, of course, at all. Two bishops in particular were being a right pain in the neck about the Edwardian Reformation. 
One of them was the Bishop of London, Edmund Bonner. He'd initially refused to allow Cranmer's visitation to go ahead in his area, the process whereby all the behaviour of all the parishes were reviewed. The process where the stripping of the altars and images really began in earnest in the churches. Eventually, Bonner had been forced to give way, but Gardiner, as Bishop of Winchester, had not. Not only that, but Gardiner had peppered the council on Somerset with letters of protest, protesting that Edward was not yet of an age to make such decisions. And so much so that he'd actually been thrown in prison a while to try and stop him. And it was while there that the visitation of the Winchester Diocese had been carried out behind his back. Now Gardiner was released, and the council wanted his submission because look, if they could get the great Stephen Gardiner to give even the appearance of backing their reforms, well, hoody doody, all would be swell, in fact, super swell. The strategy they arrived at was to get Stephen Gardiner to preach in public on St Peter's Day, which, as you'll all know, is of course 29th of June. This was the kind of strategy described in strategy textbooks as high risk. Actually, somewhere between high risk and the hounds of hell, but never mind. Somerset had his bright young thing, Cecil, which brings us back to Winchester's door. Once admitted, young William explained, politely but firmly, to the great bishop, exactly what he could and what he could not say in his forthcoming sermon. The great bishop was not accustomed to being told what he could and could not say in his sermons, and he went, to put it in mild terms, ballistic. Is that mild? He was about to storm over to Somerset's gaff himself and give him a piece of his mind, assuming, as he did, that Cecil must have overstepped his brief, the little tinker, since Somerset surely would never allow a great man such as Stephen Gardiner to be treated so. Then he realised that tramping through the dirty streets of Southwark would not meet with the dignity of his position, so he sent instead two of his own chaplains. Possibly what followed in the bishop's palace might be described as an awkward silence. Did Cecil go for small talk, I wonder? So, going somewhere nice with the kids this year? Oh, wait, you don't do priestly marriage, do you? Presumably, actually, he was thrown out of the gardener's sanctum and stood kicking his heels outside. When gardener's chaplains returned, looking either scared or outraged, I suspect, they told old Wiley Winchester that Somerset's answer was that gardener should not suspect the said duke's trusty servants, whom he used to send unto him. I imagine there was a growl from the other side of the desk and a desperate attempt not to look smug on the other. As it happens, when it came to the big day, Gardiner seems to have thought that he could pull it off. He spoke as required on the right of rulers to reform or remove abuses in the church. Tick. Somerset beamed. Maybe he gave Cecil a little cheek tweak. Well done, my lad. Ah. Then Gardiner followed it up with a tirade against governments that smashed images. Oh dear. On the way home, Gardiner seemed to think he'd charted a course between the scylla of his beliefs and the charybidus of the council's demands. He was wrong. Early in 1549, the next visit from Somerset's servants was less politic. Gardiner ended up in the tower, and this time he wouldn't get out. For a while, he stayed as bishop and even managed to sign up to the 1549 Book of Common Prayer, which had enough wriggle room in his view for traditionalists to live with. By September, though, Edmund Bonner, Bishop of London, had also hit the back of a prison cell. He'd been told to preach at St Paul's Cross, and he too had failed to make it through the cheese grater of the new orthodoxy. The traditionalists were thus deprived of two of their strongest spokespeople, though for the moment they held on to their positions as bishops. But they were living on borrowed time. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. At the end of September 1549, however, Gardner was not the only one living on borrowed time. Somerset must have begun to realise that the last two and a half years had not necessarily convinced the rest of the council that he was the right man for the job. There were, shall we say, concerns. One point of view might have been that he was simply properly concerned with the well-being of the common people. The noble folk and gentry on the council, however, might just see it in a different way, as a raging populist whose ludicrous support for the rebels was undermining their own position in life, and they were the people on whom Somerset depended, not the common people. Though it might be added that the ordinary folk in London, at least, at this time weren't very keen on Somerset either, given the chaos that he was causing by the building of Somerset House. And then, there'd been that lack of decisiveness when the camps thing was all going on. Really, that had been terrifying. He'd taken to making decisions without proper reference to the council, behaviour that his colleagues were beginning to find autocratic and arrogant. Now, competent high-handedness was one thing. Incompetent high-handedness was quite another. Plus, the French had now declared war, sacred blue. The situation in Scotland was looking nastier by the day as English garrisons came under pressure and the French had sent soldiers to help the Scots. What a pickle this is all becoming. There was also the matter of the Princess Mary, which was becoming something of an irritant. The Book of Common Prayer had not gone down well at Canning Hall, shall we say. Not gone down well at all. Gardner might be able to twist and turn and make the book compatible with traditional worship, but Mary was neither that flexible nor that subtle. Mary's outrage was shared and reinforced, of course, by the trusty imperial ambassador, a man called van der Delft, who was essentially much more of Mary's cup of tea than was the council. Mary was not known for her ability to bend with the wind. She'd done it once in her life for her father, after mum had died, but she wasn't going to let that happen again. And her real passion was for confrontation. So, when Whitson came in 1549, she let it all hang out. The biggest baddest mass was celebrated at her chapel with all invited to join in. Come on, go mass! Somerset responded by calling in her chaplains and disciplining them. Mary responded with an imperious letter to Somerset, accusing him of forgetting her status, upbraiding him for being unfriendly to her and cleverly echoing Gardner's protests that Edward was not of an age where he could be making decisions like this, so this must be the work merely of the council and they were not authorised to take such decisions, in which she had a point. And if Edward had been of an age, she continued, he would never have countenanced such a thing, in which she was probably wrong. Somerset signally failed to take any firm action in response. The prayer book rebellion was going on at the time, The emperor had written sternly to say that he would not countenance the princess being forced to change her religion. And so Somerset allowed Mary to continue to practice her religion as she wished, in her own gaff at least. It is probable that tongues had been wagging for a while. 
that secret conversations had gone on behind closed doors, and that even before the commotion time really took off, there was a growing resistance to Somerset's rule already underway. Whenever it exactly happened, both supporters and detractors of the good Duke were unimpressed with the way the nation was being governed. William Paget, for example, was the Duke's chum. How we are exhausted and worn to the bones with these eight years' war, both of men, money and all other things. Your Grace and my Lords know better than I. Van der Delft, the imperial ambassador, wrote on the 15th of September that matters in this realm are restless for change. The people are all in confusion and with one common voice lament the present state of things. Van der Delft, it must be said, was something of a one for bigging up the neggies. But on the council... John Dudley, Earl of Warwick, seems to have become seriously hacked off with his boss too, particularly after a grant that he'd had his eye on went the wrong way. It just so happens that our Dudders also had an army under his wing at this point in time, which is a handy thing to have, the very same army that he'd used to suppress the rebellions in East Anglia. In fact, England was awash with armies at this time now. Lord Russell, of course, had an army as well the army that had been used at the other end of the country to suppress the prayer book rebellion. Now, on the 4th of October 1549, metaphorically speaking, a penny fell off one of those penny falls machiney things that we used to have so much fun with in the days of my youth before they invented virtual reality games, which are so much cooler. The penny falls was in Somerset's mind. Duke Pollyanna suddenly heard a rumour that Dudley and Lord Arundel were planning to remove him from the council. That seems to be all that he knew, but Somerset was with the King at Hampton Court about 15 miles from Westminster at the time. Somerset flicked open his panic switch and hit the big red one hard as he could. An announcement went out for all men to gather to defend the King. This was Somerset the populist in action. Come, common men of the realm, come to the side of your protector and your King. At the same time, he sent out orders to Russell to bring that spare army to him ASAP. As it happens, Somerset had selected the perfect time to panic, because Arundel and Warwick were indeed planning to remove him from the council or from the Lord Protectorship, as was Thomas Rottersley, the now, unfortunately, called the Earl of Somerset. In fact, the Lords had been on the point of setting off to Hampton Court to have it out with Somerset, when the bills of Somerset's recent announcements were thrust under their collective noses. So, instead, realising that Somerset was forewarned, they set up in Dudley's house in Hoburn as their headquarters and before you could say swash and buckler, the streets of London were awash with horsemen. Or so a messenger at Hampton Court told Somerset. Meanwhile, King Edward noticed in his journal that men were arriving all the time at Hampton Court. About 4,000 peasants came in answer to Somerset's call and not all of them were useless. The war of words was underway. The king is in danger went Somerset's cry. The evil lords are out to place Mary as regents. Don't listen to him, cried the lords. He's fibbing, they said. We never did. And anyway, what Somerset's not mentioning is his pride, covetousness and ambition. And the lords sent a letter to the nobles in the country telling them to come and support their cause. And indeed, many did. Mary, meanwhile, had a look at the situation. There was something of a conservative angle to this council protest that maybe could be exploited. OK, the Lords had sent her a letter vehemently denying they planned to make her regents, but there'd been a bit of wool left carelessly in the letter which suggested the Lords had just been knitting arse covers in case things went wrong. What she knew 
was that there were Conservative Lords prominent in the coven at Hoburn. Rottersley, Arundel, William Paulet were all religious traditionalists. Mary displayed a talent she was to show during later crises, a talent for headless chicken impressions. This time, the Emperor and van der Delft were able to provide a head for her. In a letter of the 17th of September, the Emperor was not convinced there was an opportunity for her here. As for certain councillors' machinations against the Protector, it does not for the present seem opportune that such an important change take place in England. It would be exceedingly hazardous for the Lady Mary to take any share in such proceedings. Now look at the date on that. 17th of September, weeks before this crisis had broken out. It seems pretty clear that plenty of politicking had been going on well before October. And on the other hand, remarkable the candidness with which Mary effectively conspired with a foreign power. As far as she was concerned, Charles was her relative and that trumped the council and religion trumped everything. It's also remarkable how concerned the English powers that be were about the emperor and his movements. Charles would continually prove himself to be all hat and no cattle, if I had that saying correct. But they, of course, did not have our 2020 hindsight that Charles already had too many distractions and higher priorities to invade England. And after all, Charles was the most powerful man in Europe at the time, so I suppose their reticence was not so remarkable. By the 7th of October, things were not going that well for Somerset. 17 of 25 councillors had declared and taking themselves to Dudley's place. Somerset, though, the military man, was advancing on London with his armed peasants. And as he left, his duchess was sent away weeping because she was, and I quote, very badly handled in words by all those presents who put all this trouble down to her. Well, that's interesting. Is this a simple case of misogyny, or looking around for a handy scapegoat? Or was this evidence that the duchess had more influence on the duke's activities than we might imagine? Should we in fact be talking of the good but incompetent Duchess rather than Duke? Who knows? But either way, Somerset had found the time for action and he struck for the Tower of London with his fledgling army to seize the armoury. Which seems like a good idea, and all was going swimmingly. On the road, they met a man riding at full tilt towards them. If you had been there at the time, you might have noticed a slight sag in the good Duke's shoulders. The man was Edward Wolfe, and he'd been sent to secure the tower, and his presence on the road must have meant that the lords already held it. And so there was nothing for it. Bold Sir Robin ran away. 180 degrees turn, back not to Hampton Court though, but further out to Windsor Castle. Edward, meanwhile, was resolutely on Somerset's side. My vassals would help you against those who want to kill me, he said, sword at his side from which quote it might appear that Somerset had not been trying to allay the lad's fears. Are they really trying to kill me? Oh, yes. So it was, for the moment, a stalemate. As Somerset looked out from the castle walls at Windsor, he saw a chaos of organisation, of men and material pushing and shoving, new men arriving, carts trundling in through the town, merchants swarming like vultures looking for business, shouted orders and confusion as Somerset's captains tried to push poorly trained peasants into companies, trying to create an army from a rabble. Somerset had ordered that all but the best equipped and experienced peasants be sent straight home. He simply didn't have the resources to feed them all. No, everything came down to Russell and his battle-hardened army from the west. Where was Russell? 
Somerset had received no answer to his letter. With Somerset on his side, the balance of power would swing back to him. All thought of surrender could be banished. The Lords would be forced to back down or face accusations of treason against the King. Now it was all about Russell. Over the walls on the trackway that connected Windsor to the west, Somerset noticed a messenger galloping fast, dust rising behind him as he tore past the peasants in the fields with their teams of oxen, making use of the last chance to turn the soil before the winter set in. He watched the horsemen disappear into the town outside the castle walls until eventually he reappeared and clattered into the courtyard below, threw himself off his horse and demanded to see the protector. Somerset hurried down from the battlements and before long he held in his hands a letter, the messenger before him showing no sign that he knew anything about its contents. From my lord, the Earl of Southampton, is all he would say. Somerset tore at the seal and read the contents of the letter. The quarrel once begun will never have end, he read. Bloodshed must be avoided at all costs, Russell pleaded. He appealed to Somerset to save England from civil war. Somerset threw down the letter. Russell was for the lords and had joined all the other secular lords on the council who now stood arrayed against him. Somerset's populism had probably done for him. Somerset had arrived at the great political toaster. He offered his submission to the presumably quite confused king, I thought they were trying to kill me, and wrote to his erstwhile friend Warwick. Time to get the best deal that he could, and any deal was better than no deal. Well, we all know what happens next, of course. (coughs) Off with his head. Having said that the Lords were subjected to quite the barrage of support for the Lord Protector. Somerset got the King to write. His mate Paget wrote, though actually the suspicion is that Paget had secretly swapped sides just before the end and was now playing both ends off against each other. It's interesting that the only other councillor that stuck by Somerset was Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer wrote his accustomed words of mercy to the Lords. Life is sweet, my Lords. And they say you seek his blood and his death? He hath never been cruel to any of you. Why should you be cruelly minded to him? The letters that arrived back from the Lords on the 10th of October were pretty blood-curdling. The Protector was roundly condemned, and Cranmer and Paget were told to stop blathering on and look after the King and make sure he was safe. The propaganda battle had been conclusively won by the Lords. When the defeated Duke arrived in London finally on the 14th of October, he was roundly booed by the crowd, despite proclaiming loudly to the crowd that he was no traitor, but as faithful a servant of the King as any man. Paget wrote, The Duke is now stayed and his troublesome head whereby great questions shall follow by God's help. Somerset was charged with 20 counts of treason. Behind the scenes, the Duchess was politicking as hard as she could to save her husband, including begging for the support of the Princess Mary. And despite her evangelism, the Duchess and Mary would remain on good terms. There were two questions now then. One was what would happen to Somerset. The other was who would now rule. Formerly, as the protector was stripped of his title, power resided once more with the executors of Henry VIII's will but we all know that there can only be one. And who would that one be? Every man repaireth to Rottersley, honoureth Rottersley, sueth unto Rottersley, reported John Ponnet. Van der Delft was so excited at the prospect of a traditionless victory that a little we came out. 
all the foremost councillors are Catholics, he declared. But there was more. Even Dudley, he said, was taking up the old observances day by day. He had forbidden his household to eat meat on Fridays under severe penalties. Now at last, it was looking as though the Conservatives were about to have their day again. Rottersley took up lodgings near the King. He told the Ambassador that Mary would be allowed to have her way with the Mass. The Earl of Arundel contacted Mary, asking to be taken back into her service. What we have here, essentially, is a double coup. Or at least, now that Somerset had been ousted from the top of the greasy pole or the dung heap, select your metaphor as you see fit, who was going to replace him? Dr Nose Pool boiled with feeding piranhas. And it was a vital question once again. For would that new man be a Conservative or an Evangelical? While Rottersley and the Conservatives were claiming their prizes, other things were happening not so happy for their cause. Dudley might possibly have been eating fish on a Friday, but he also made sure that the King's personal companions were all his men, and they were all Evangelicals. It seems that this was either due to Cranmer's intercession or indeed Edward's own demands, because Edward was beginning to show his evangelical chops for himself. He had already responded to an academic assignment on the power of the Pope by condemning the Pope and all his works. Edward was no longer a cipher, and he pointed more and more towards the evangelical cause. It therefore began to occur to Dudley that if he wanted to win this particular struggle, and it appeared that he did, then the evangelicals were in want of a leader to oppose Rottersley, and who better to provide that leadership than, mm, oh, him. Aligning with the evangelicals probably meant not topping the most well-known evangelical of them all, namely the Duke of Somerset. It also meant packing the council with his men, of course. The Bishop of Ely and Henry Gray, Marcus of Dorset and father of Jane Gray arrived on the council, swinging the numbers back the evangelical way. Meanwhile, the Duchess of Somerset was practically doorstepping Warwick and his wife and holding constant dinners to drum up support for her husband. She might have been called hell, but you would want her on your side in a fight. And so it began to be the body of Somerset that was the battlefield over which the two emerging factions fought. If Somerset died, the Conservatives won. If Somerset lived, Dudley and the Evangelicals won. Fortunately for the traditionalists, Rottersley had been given the job of interrogating Somerset, and Somerset meanwhile confirmed that Dudley at all stages knew everything that Somerset knew. As they left one session, Rottersley remarked to Arundel, I thought ever we should find them traitors both, and both are worthy to die by my advice. So, if Somerset went, Dudley went. Arundel meanwhile had done some sidling in the finest political tradition, drawing aside an aged council member called John Paulet. John's biggest political talent was not getting involved or committing himself to anything, but Arundel thought in this case he might be a supporter. And if he wasn't, well, never mind, he'd never do anything about it. So Arundel sidled up to John Paulet. Now, look, there's a council meeting coming up. We're going to go for Somerset's head. I assume I can count on your support. To his chagrin, John Paulet was not prepared to let Arundel make any assumption. The big council meeting that was to spell Somerset's doom and Dudley's doom and the English Reformation's doom opened at Dudley's palace at Hoburn. Rottersley noted with grim satisfaction that this was because Dudley was ill. And indeed, as the council meeting opened, Dudley lay on his bed 
while the council debated. Rottersley recounted the result of his interrogations with Somerset, and then he demanded Somerset's death. He was worthy to die for his many treasons, he declaimed dramatically. This was the moment. The response was equally dramatic. Dudley leapt from his bed and cried out, My lord, you seek his blood, and he that seeketh his blood would have mine also. Here then was the moment. Rottersley looked round the council, looking into the eyes of his fellow councillors to count their support. And what he saw in the councillor's eyes was victory. But it was Dudley's victory. Unknown to him, Paulet had gone straight to his enemy and Dudley had been forewarned. Rottersley had played and he had lost. Thomas Rottersley was duly arrested and his supporters were all rounded up, Richard Southall, Arundel and others. As it happens, Rottersley wasn't long for this earth anyway. Actually not that on this occasion. His physician had identified tuberculosis and by 1550 Rottersley would be dead. He'd been a player through times of extraordinary political turmoil and there's no doubt he was motivated by power but he was also remembered for his administrative competence and efficiency. Amongst all the politics and nest feathering he remained an active and effective public servant. And so the second coup had been resolved. The new power broker was John Dudley, Earl of Warwick. Now, I thought it might be worth a few minutes of why. I hear you pause. Look at your MP3 player with surprise. Is this man an idiot? I hear you ask. Isn't it obvious? He just wanted to be the boss. You know, people do, especially in politics. Ah, but why, I ask. Why did he want to be the boss? The black legend I talked about a few episodes back had little doubt. To provide how he might deliver himself from the many troubles which it was foreseen might overtake him on these accounts as soon as the king should be of an age to govern. According to Catholic opinion, the plan was that Northumberland was to get his hands on power and then poison the king. Do I have to say this is clearly nonsense? However, other opinion wasn't much more complimentary, the idea being that Northumberland had committed some terrible crimes and mismanagements, which he would make even worse after this point, and would therefore have to control the king or else be brought to account in a future reign. Coupled with this was a theory that Dudley was wildly greedy for wealth as well as power. It is possible that this is correct, but there are alternative views available which have gained greater currency and which partly need to be reviewed in the light of Dudley's period in power, so it's a bit early here maybe. Historian Eric Ives in particular noted that Dudley's political and military life so far had been characterised by caution with a particular tendency to defer to the opinion of professionals or his king. There's no doubt that Dudley had courage, and even could be very overbearing in counsel, but he's notable for the effort he goes through to consult his colleagues, and throughout his career he shows this tendency to defer with a certain lack of self-confidence. I shall endeavour myself, as far as my poor wit and discretion will serve, to give the best advice that I can, albeit that I know it right well, I had more need to be instructed in such like cases by some of them than them by me. This was Dudley in 1545, after eight years of being admiral. His caution is possibly understandable. The memory of his father's death, executed by Henry VIII, of course, was constantly in his mind. Dudley had a sense of the injustice of his father's fall, since he, in Northumberland's view, had suffered death for doing his master's commandments and his response was to be faultless in his loyalty. For my part, with all earnestness and duty, 
I will serve without fear, seeking nothing but the true glory of God and his highness's surety. So I shall please God and have my conscience upright and then not fear what man doth to me. This was Dudley after 1549, claiming to be a man who neither hath understanding nor wit meet for the association, nor body apt to render his duty any ways as the will and heart desireth. So the alternative view is that Dudley was a man desperately conscious of his own limitations, but determined to do his duty as he saw it by God and by his master the king. Like any great family, he was deeply committed to the status and reputation of his family, eager to make sure his father's reputation was redeemed by his own actions. The whole political community had seen that Somerset was not capable of ruling effectively and determined to remove him. It only later emerged that Dudley was the best man for this job, and the man who, in so doing, would maintain the progress of the Edwardian Reformation. Killing Somerset had been avoided, and he was safely in the Tower. Dudley's first act, meanwhile, was to reward the supporters that had got him there, and they were duly rewarded with honours and promotions. A new regime was in the building. Next week, then, we'll see how Northumberland handles his newfound power, and we'll return also to spend a little time on the story of Princess Mary, find out how she's been getting along. We will be joined ever so briefly by a member of the Crowther Players. Don't forget now, hop along to the historyofengland.co.uk, hit become a member and strike a blow for marmalade. Or you can subscribe via Patreon or just make a donation. I'm not proud. Any support, most welcome. And meanwhile, thanks to all of you for listening. Do let me know whether I should add a bit of music and stuff here and there. It won't ever be very much, it has to be said. It takes ages to do. But you know, hopefully breaks the things up a little bit. Thanks to all of you for your helpful comments and ratings on iTunes. Really love them, read all of them, and it's very lovely of you. And thanks most of all to all you lovely members. I am eternally grateful. Good luck then, everyone, and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.